Hello and welcome everyone to the Fate of the Union podcast, a weekly review of the biggest issues in national politics given from a conservative perspective. The show will also periodically address current true crime cases from across the country. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's talk about the fate of the Union. Welcome to Fate of the Union. The date of recording of this episode is Thursday, September 24th, 2020. Please subscribe to Fate of the Union on YouTube and iTunes, and follow Fate of the Union on Twitter and Medium for more commentary. This episode will be reviewing the recent decision by the grand jury to not charge any of the officers involved in the shooting death of Breonna Taylor for her death. In a press conference Wednesday afternoon, Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron explained the grand jury's decision to indict only a single officer as a result of a March incident that left emergency room technician Breonna Taylor dead. For what it's worth, A.G. Cameron is a black man, so that should quell any suspension of racial motivation in not questioning or overturning the decision. Nevertheless, as we will shortly see, This has done nothing to maintain order in the streets of Louisville and in cities across the country. In the months since the shooting, we've heard numerous tales regarding the facts of this case that turned out to be untrue, yet are still being parroted by those with a racial axe to grind. For example, one of the issues from the original story was that Brianna and her boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, were asleep when the cops stormed into the apartment. We now know, based on statements of those involved in the altercation, that both Brianna and Walker were awake and in the hallway waiting for the cops to come through the doorway. This is important since the clear suggestion from the sleeping narrative was that the two individuals were caught off guard and at the least could be reasonable in shooting who they thought were intruders and at most were reasonable because the cops were trying to ambush them while they were off guard and sleeping. This is not true. Second, we have the issue of the supposed no-knock warrant. We have heard in the weeks following the shooting that the cops effectuated a no-knock warrant for the apartment and thus this added to the supposed element of surprise involved with the cops breaking into the apartment. Now we know that while a no-knock warrant is permitted in Kentucky, it was not utilized in this case. On the contrary, based on statements from the cops and from another resident of the building, the cops indeed knocked and announced their presence before entering the apartment. Walker himself admits that he heard knocking, but still claims he did not hear the cops announce themselves. I think that the witness statement confirming that the announcement was made here is critical. Some disinterested party has backed up the proper procedure by the cops in this case. Furthermore, it would be interesting to know where the witness lived in the building. If, for the sake of argument, the witness lived down the hall, on the other side of the building, or on another floor, and was still able to hear the cops announcing themselves, that is very strong evidence that the proper procedure was followed insofar as the initial entrance into Walker's apartment. Moreover, it also calls into question Walker's claim that he didn't hear an announcement from the cops. 
If that hypothetical turns out to be true, then how could Walker be believed that he didn't hear the announcement when someone in a different part of the building was still able to hear the cops? Although I think the witness statement still justifies the conclusion that the cops properly entered the apartment, the location of that witness could be useful in assessing Walker's credibility. Next is the nature of the shooting. We know based on the statements and initial forensic work done so far that Walker fired first, and thus this initiated the ensuing firefight between he and the cops. So the simple act of firing, generally speaking, was prompted by the initial use of deadly force by Walker. Nevertheless, those on the racial left always have a failsafe, always have a backup lie to go to. On the rare occasion, they get held down on their arguments and have to pivot. We were then met with a bogus claim that apparently the bullets, obviously not meant for Taylor, since she was not the one who started the gunfight, were excessive for a couple reasons. First, the shots were excessive, allegedly, because several shots missed both individuals in the dark apartment, now being used as the anchor for a kind of wanton recklessness type of charge against one of the officers hitting random parts of the apartment. Second, the number of shots hitting Taylor is somehow evidence of intent to kill, never mind the fact that this still doesn't establish that she was the intended target. At the end of the day, This is being used as a vehicle to smear the cops on some kind of drummed-up negligence type of charge relating to Taylor's death. The murder and manslaughter laws in Kentucky are actually relatively straightforward. The murder statute is Kentucky Criminal Law Section 507-020, saying that a person is guilty of murder when they have the intent to cause the death of another person, and he actually does cause that death to that person or a third person. Subsection B goes further and explains another way to get a murder conviction would be to have the defendant in a situation that could involve the operation of a motor vehicle, but not necessarily, while still manifesting an extreme indifference to human life and wantonly engaging in conduct that creates a grave risk of death to another person and thereby actually does cause the death of another person. So, as far as the potential murder charges are concerned, we have our marching orders in terms of what laws we need to assess. First off, we can see the first subsection is completely untenable here. There is absolutely no evidence of criminal intent in the bullets hitting Breonna Taylor. She was in the middle of an active gunfight started by her boyfriend. The cops were returning fire upon the person initiating a deadly threat. There's no conceivable way to carry a murder charge to conviction when the victim is not the intended target and was essentially hit with a stray bullet. Subsection B has a type of depraved indifference standard for murder. These kinds of charges are sometimes brought when someone opens fire upon a group. The person may have had the genuine intent to just clear people out of his way or to escape a crime scene or didn't really care whether someone lost their lives as a result of their actions. Regardless, that depraved or extreme indifference to the grave risk of the loss of life and the eventual loss of life as a result would justify a murder charge anyway. 
However, we can see the glaring difference when compared to the facts of the Taylor case. The cops here did not act with extreme indifference to human life as defending However, we can see the glaring difference when compared to the facts of the Taylor case. The cops here did not act with extreme indifference to human life as contemplated by the law. That's partially because they acted in self-defense. Surely, acting and, and defending your life after someone immediately near you has already been shot by the aggressor, as was the case with one of the cops here, this is not criminally punishable based on the disregard for human life. Moreover, returning fire in the confines of a single apartment building um, within view, down view of a hallway is not wanton conduct. The attendant circumstances that any of the bullets hit Taylor or the apartment walls is irrelevant to the determination of intent by the officers and the related conclusion that they acted reasonably in the situation despite any unintended consequences to someone who is simply an unfortunate bystander. More on that later. Next, we have manslaughter. Manslaughter in the first degree in Kentucky doesn't apply here because although one section calls for the intent and result of causing serious injury to another, this charge becomes impossible to bring to conviction for the same reason as the murder charge we spoke about first. There is no criminal intent to cause harm or death to Breonna Taylor. Furthermore, the cops did not act with the extreme emotional disturbance called for in the law, which is normally reserved for situations like catching your spouse cheating or having a serious emotional or psychological disturbance or disability at the time of the alleged crime. Second-degree manslaughter cannot be brought here either because there are no situations involving harm or death to anyone when the operation of motor vehicles or the use of controlled substances are involved, which is required for second-degree manslaughter in Kentucky. Interestingly here, Kentucky has abolished the felony murder rule. We've talked about this on a few episodes previously. Felony murder says that if an individual was engaged in an inherently dangerous felony, then he could be held criminally culpable under the state's murder statute for any deaths that resulted from his conduct, regardless if he is the one who actually killed someone. The typical example is actually one very similar to the facts of this case. The person initiates a shootout with the cops, which is certainly inherently dangerous felony, and the cops stray bullet hits the person's co-conspirator or an innocent bystander. The criminal himself didn't fire that bullet. They killed the person in this situation, but felony murder allows for the person to be charged for the murder anyway. Nevertheless, the Kentucky legislature abolished the felony murder rule with the enactment of the Kentucky Revised Statute Section 507.020 the murder statute that we discussed at the top of this episode. Recognizing that an automatic application of the rule could result in conviction of murder without a culpable mindset, the Kentucky legislature instead allowed the circumstances of a case 
like the commission of a felony, to be considered separately. Otherwise, I think there would have been a strong case for felony murder against Walker based on the facts of this case. You had several police officers effectuating a legal and valid warrant to search the apartment of Kenneth Walker. In response, you had Kenneth Walker taking the exchange to a deadly threat by opening fire on the officers. The resulting stray bullet, while not fired by Walker, was necessitated by his conduct and was necessarily needed to happen in order for the eventual death of Breonna Taylor to occur. While the laws on the books in Kentucky will prevent this charge from coming and for Kenneth Walker to stand trial for felony murder, it's an interesting point to think about as far as the public's reception of this case and who they truly think is responsible and who is culpable in the ensuing gunfight that resulted in Breonna Taylor's death. So that does it for this week's episode of Fate of the Union. You can reach me, Franklin, the host of the program, on Twitter or Medium.com by searching Fate of the Union. And please visit our new YouTube page over at Fate of the Union as well. You can also reach us by email at franklinfotu at gmail.com. This has been the Fate of the Union. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye.